0: Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. I'm crazy excited to be with you guys. My name is Lucas Jackson. I have the joy of being the youth pastor here, which is a ton of fun. So I'm a fan. I recommend all of you should be in youth ministry because it's the greatest thing in the world. And I I don't have a Bible passage for it, but you need to be in youth (laughs) ministry. So, hey, you know, most of my life looking back, I was trying to think, Um, I've just always drifted towards the extreme in most areas of my life. um, And I would even say in the sinful ways and even in the ways of just enjoying life. I've had a hard time just, at least in my mind, just trying to be average. And I totally am like below average in most things. That's not my point. My point is just in life, even from a young age, I, I desire to just go extreme in things. And I remember in sixth grade, I... Uh, busted my right arm. Many of you have probably busted an arm or a leg and you go to the doctor and they take an x-ray and they put a cast on it. and, um, And that usually means if you're still in high school or college and you're in sports, that usually means that you're done until it's fixed, right? That's what most parents will tell you. And so I remember thinking when I busted my arm in the sixth grade, I'm like, this doesn't mean I'm done playing basketball, and my mom was quick to say, yes, it does. And so I remember playing, uh, maybe a couple weeks after I broke my arm, playing in the driveway, and, and I got real mad And because you're limited to one wrist because the other one's in a cast. And I remember slinging my arm down, and the cast goes flying down the road, and I think to myself, I'm playing basketball. So it was a week or two later. We had a game in a small town, rural community I lived in. And so I lied to my mom. You have never done that, but I did, a lot. And I lied to my mom and said, Mom, I'm going to go to a friend's house. We're just going to like swim in a hot tub, have a good time, you know, be all good. So I leave the house with swimsuit and towel and all that kind of stuff. I walk uh, to our backyard, had a good-sized barn. And I didn't have a key to the barn, so I, I changed clothes. Um, into my basketball stuff in our backyard, and I placed all my swim stuff right by the barn. I walked to my neighbor's house, and we went and played basketball. It was glorious. And I came back, and I'm going to walk to the door. And I'm like, oh, I can't walk back through the front door and basketball stuff. Um, so I went back to the barn, because that's where I left the clothes, and even my cast, because I had a broken arm. And it was all gone. <laughs> and I'm like... Then I'm trying to think, how am I going to lie to my mom? I got to lie to my mom twice today. And, and so, I'm, so I end up walking back through the door, and I'm busted. And I'm um, to find out a neighbor picked up my stuff, which is a very neighborly thing to do other than when I'm trying to lie to my mom and get away with something. And even just from that moment and just growing up, I just I wanted to continue doing things even when there was an obstacle in my way. And it got worse. I went to college, and I did play basketball, which is like, it's like high school. It was like the lowest of the lowest of the low. So don't, I am short. Yes. Um, And so I remember uh, in, I went to Moody Bible Institute, downtown Chicago, phenomenal school. If you're looking for ministry, highly recommend it. Great reputation. Um, Awesome what God has done through that school. Um, But we had fight nights. And I know you you think seminary, these people are going to go to ministry. Why are they fighting each other? Well, it's for fun. (laughs) This is true. So we had uh, fight nights and this particular night, a guy from another floor came down, and my roommate was the greatest instigator the world had ever seen, and he's like, Lucas, you fight this guy. Lucas, you fight this guy. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. And so I do fight, and this particular, it, it depended on the night, if it was slap boxing, regular fighting, fist fighting, or we use gloves. It just kind of depended on what we were feeling that week. So... Um, <laughs> So this was the first, re- maybe, well, maybe third or fourth wrestling match, and I had no idea that this guy knew what he was doing. I did not. So I charged this guy, and in a matter of three seconds, my feet are in the air. My head is smashed against the ground. He slams all of my weight and all of his weight on top of my left elbow. Left elbow broke in half. And if you know, and the great thing about adrenaline is uh, it works until it doesn't. And then about 15 minutes later, I'm like, I got to go to the doctor. And sure enough, busted elbow in half. And you would think that I would like learn from this, take a break, slow down. You clearly can't play basketball. Um, And this was a time of my life where going to the gym was like three, four hours a day because for basketball practice and then working out was tons of fun, enjoyed it. And I thought it was a good idea to continue working out with only one arm, And so I continued to go to the gym, and I could do most leg things. Um, You couldn't do squat, but uh, you could do the sled, other things. And I uh, remember uh, I was like, man, how am I going to do bench? And I was like, I can do this. So I literally, for six months, this is so ignorant beyond ignorance. For six months, I worked out with one arm, my upper body. I know, some of you guys are like, this guy, we hired this guy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, you did. And, I rem- and even to this day, if you were to rub your hand down my spine, you'd be like, there's a muscle on this side, but the left side, it's because it's still messed up uh, from my time where I thought it was a good idea to do that. And I could share many more examples of my ignorance and my desire to not want to give up and continue going forward and uh, never give up in that particular just extreme personality that I have. And if you know me, it is very extreme, and I sometimes can help it and sometimes can't, and so please pray for my family. <laughs> and so today, I, man, in, in my preparation for the sermon today, I found a word in the Bible that is fitting for what it means to be extreme, and so I'm excited about this. And so today, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy 6, five. and we've been in a series, um, Take It All. So a posture for 2020, we as a church, all of us collectively together, have a posture of... God, take it all. Let's pursue you as a church in 2020. Let's be simply about Jesus. That's who we are as a church. And let's let that be the motto that we proclaim as an individual and as collectively as a church. And so we've been in this series. And as a staff, we've taken a look at what does it mean to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. And today we're going to take a look at strength. And so that's the joy that I get to preach on. And so Deuteronomy 6, 5 here, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so this is what we've been teaching in the last month of our series here. Um, and in Mark 12, this is where we also taught on mind. Because when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, he adds the word mind. And we went through all that. So today, in our time, we want to take, what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all of your strength? Or your Bible may say all of your might. And so excited to take a look at that. And, and the Hebrew word here is ma'od. You can say that ma'od. Ma'od perfect. So that is what this word here is, It is strength or or, uh, might in your Bible. And so this word really um, is a fascinating word, actually. It really means muchness. Love the Lord your God with your muchness. What's a little vague, which is kind of why I like it, but it means very or much. And we can look at passages of scripture where it's used. In Genesis chapter one, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is where God creates all things. And uh, every day he says, God created this and it was good. And then we come to uh, verse 31 and he said, it was very good. Maod good, you could say. And then we could go to Genesis four, verse five. Another example here. Um, If you're not familiar, this is where Cain gets really, really, really mad at his brother and he kills him. This is a true story. And so in the scripture, it says that Cain was ma'od angry. He wasn't like angry where he like kicked the cat or like got mad and, you know, had a little hissy fit. He got so angry that he like killed his brother. So he's pretty angry, right? And I do not recommend you kick your cat either, just to clarify. And so this word here is, it intensifies everything that is associated with. So, so you could see why this word would occur a lot. And you probably even use like, man, I'm extremely mad or I'm super excited or this is amazing. So you could be very happy or very sad or you could be very good today. Like it's used all the time, roughly 300 times in the scripture. And when the Old Testament audience used this word, it was used to increase the, the force of total capacity, and I'm going to get to what that means in a minute. And so going back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we've been looking at what does it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and we're going to take a look today what what it look, look like to love the Lord your God with all of your might. And if you were to love God with all of your muchness, and if the word ma'od when used is to intensify the meaning of the word that it is associated with, To its total capacity, in this final way that God is commanding us to love him, is not just a thing. It's actually literally everything. To love God with your muchness means to love God in every way you possibly can, as long as it doesn't contradict with Scripture. The New Testament culture would have seen this, and they would have interpreted it as power or strength, which is what a lot of your uh, English translations would have, because that's how they interpreted it. In the Old Testament, it's actually quite fascinating. The Jewish audience would have looked at this word and automatically associated it with wealth, the tangible resources that you have. And, And that makes sense because it's easy to tangibly hold money and to utilize that in such a way to love God. And so you could take these resources and you could purchase something that advances good. We as a church are planning Uh, building a church in African New Life. We're giving financial resources. And so here's what we're seeing God do. And so it's a pretty tangible way. So it makes sense why the Jewish audience would associate that way. And so we could ask ourselves, what is the meaning of, how do we want to interpret this word? Does it mean power? Does it mean strength? Does it mean wealth? Does it mean mind in the way that, that Christ quotes it in In Mark 12, 30, when he quotes Deuteronomy 6. And I think it's really the wrong question. I think understanding Ma'o does not limit the number of ways we can love God. It actually does the opposite. It's like we can love God in an infinite number of ways, which is awesome because all of us have different skill sets and different knowledge of the Bible. Some of you have been Christians for decades, some of you maybe only been Christians for weeks, and we're all in, in just different places in our pursuit of Christ. And so, It's very fitting for God to say this. And everything in our lives can be a moment to love God with our muchness. You can love God with your muchness in every moment, every opportunity, every ability, every capacity, and even every gift that God has given you. Everything you have could literally be used in such a way to love God. Now realize by loving God, with all of our muchness means that every act that we go about can be an act of worship. It can be a way to express our love for God. Day-to-day activities are not meaningless, boring, insignificant. It gives value to all that we do. In reality, the point that God wants us to understand is we are to grow in the ways of following Christ. When we follow Christ, we see that we change. We become less like ourselves and more like Christ. This is the biblical understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You follow Christ. (laughs) And some people, I think, call themselves Christians yet never become followers of Christ just like some people associate themselves with some things, yet they are not what they say they are. Three times in the New Testament, the word Christian is used to follow Christ, and all that he teaches and all that he commands is used hundreds of times. I just finished my quiet time in the book of Deuteronomy, and if you've ever read through, it's a fascinating book, it's pretty awesome, and I concluded to one thing, discipline equals freedom. When I follow God, I have more freedom. In the sense that I'm pursuing God, I'm honoring him with my life. I'm, when we honor God with our muchness, we have the opportunity and the freedom to love God in every capacity that is humanly possible. So how do we really understand in our culture, what does it mean to love God with our muchness? So um, you've probably heard of the phrase, it's like Texas edition or Texas size anything. And I remember in seminary, When somebody from Texas would come and preach at chapel, I just hated it because they'd talk about Texas. And I'm like, and I didn't know anything about Texas. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what the heck is up with Texas, but you need to get over Texas. (laughs) And I moved to Texas and you just, you know, you just, it's like, you just get it, right? Okay. 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 You're fine. Now let me explain here a little bit. Um, Let's go to it. I got to, let's go to an image, please. So I bought my son a truck. It was about 85 bucks. Best uh, investment thus far in my son's life. His name, his name is Maverick. He's two years old, and he loves his truck. Now, this is a this is an okay truck, okay, but it's not a Texas-sized truck, okay. There's a difference. This is a Texas-sized truck. <laughs> you get the point? Like, like one is okay, and the other is really okay. You see the difference here? All right non-Texas people, Texas people, okay, (laughs) oh, I do like Texas, and if you're here and you're not from Texas, I'm not really from Texas, we love you as well, just as much, so anyway, you get the point, this is what the difference is between loving God somewhat and loving God a lot, um, Pastor Brandon, this past week, as you learned last Sunday, he likes to smoke meat. Now, I started smoking meat before he did, and uh, this is a, he actually posted this on Instagram. You can follow him, Brandon Zisky. I'm hoping he gets 100 more followers today. And so this is his back patio, and so he's got a Traeger, which is totally cheating. If you smoke meat and use a Traeger, that's cheating, all right, in my opinion. Anyway, but he's also got an egg over here, which I've heard they're awesome, so with these two setups, Brandon can smoke like, I don't know, half a brisket, three-fourths of a brisket. He can do more than that, I know, okay, all right, like two and a half, all right? So he understands smoking meat, but let me, let me show you a friend of mine who really understands smoking meat, all right? There's a difference. One is just a smoker, and the other one is a texas size smoker, you get muchness now a little bit, all right? Yes, you guys are funny. So that's what it means to love God with our muchness. And so Mark chapter two, fascinating passage of scripture. I, I, when I was reading this passage, I, here's four guys that understand what it means to love God with their muchness. And you may have read this passage before, Matt, uh, Mark chapter two. And so um, I'm going to read through this so you get a big idea of the story, then we'll go through and. We'll talk about what some applications for us specifically today. So um, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and feel free to follow on the screen if you like. And when he entered uh, Carponunum, I always botch that word, forgive me. After some days, it was reported that he was at home. And this is talking about Jesus here. And, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And he And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Seems a little extreme. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is a legitimate question. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these thoughts in your mind, in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. God, thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach your word. I pray that it penetrates our hearts in such a way that it changes us individually, our families, those that we live with, and our church. God, move us to be simply about your son, Jesus, and to follow you for us to be less of just Christians and more of followers of you, obedient followers of who you are and what you desire for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospels, if you're in the beginning of Mark, you'll notice that Christ is actually away and praying. Actually, the context says he's praying for a really long time Um, in Mark 1.35. And then in 38, Simon Peter... Uh, finds Christ and is like, hey man, there's a crowd that's taking place. We gotta go out and go to these people. So Simon Peter goes to Jesus and Jesus says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come. I think it's important to know this is why Christ has come and and Mark helps set this up in chapter one. And then we see a crowd in chapter two that Christ himself is going to address. Now in verse one of Mark chapter two, Uh, Most likely, Jesus is at Andrew and Simon Peter's home because that's where he was at in chapter one. We're not really sure, but nonetheless, the context takes place in somebody's house. Now, let's go to the house image, please. Don't be thinking that it's like like a house like this. You probably live in something like this. Maybe yours is a two-story, Rand style. You know, maybe some of you got land, some of you don't, but it's not a house like this, okay? And that's kind of important to understand you know, when Jesus got in a boat and went across Galilee, it wasn't like a pontoon boat or a speedboat that you and I may get in today. It's a little different, right? It was more like this. And just to give you a visual, um, so it had a couple stories possibly downstairs. It had the kitchen and a courtyard. You kind of lived with your animals. You know, you had to protect them and, well, you had to eat them, so you didn't want them to get away. So they were in there as well. And And so this is what a modern house in New Testament times would have looked like, something like this. And even there would have been stairs on the outside of the house to get on top of the roof. And because it was crazy hot inside when there's no circulation, I grew up with no AC and no heat, um, literally. So uh, when you're sleeping inside and there's hardly any ventilation, it's really hot and sweaty, so it's better off to be outside. So they would sleep up there. So just to give you an idea, this is the type of house that's taking place. And in, in verse two, you see there's a crowd. I don't know if that was thousands. Nonetheless, it was a crowd. And even in the context of the, the, the four men bringing the paralytic to Jesus, they couldn't get through. So I envision something like being at a concert where it's so hard to get through, lots of people. And so, the, so Jesus is there and he's preaching. He's actually, it's the Greek word logos. He's tre- uh, preaching the truth of the gospel to these guys. He's preaching about himself. And so in verse three, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So the implication here is if it's four men, carrying this man, it's most likely a grown man. It's not a child or most likely a teenager. And so a paralytic is somebody who can't use their lower extremities. We have no idea the extent of it. We have no idea if they had an accident and it happened to them or they were born this way. We have no idea. The context does not tell us. And um, that's totally fine that we don't know that. But these men, they brought this paralytic to see Jesus. And normally, if you're going to take somebody to see somebody, you kind of like walk through the front door, right? So they tried to do that, but it They couldn't get through. I don't know how long they tried. I don't know how long they walked to get there, but they could not get through. So one of them, you know, elbows the other and says, let's just go up on the roof and we'll just bust a hole through the roof, which is a little weird to think about that. It's like, let's just bust through a window. Eh, I don't know. Like that may not be a normative thing, but that's kind of what they come up with. And I'm intrigued here because if you're a non-believer, atheist, agnostic, or you're a Christian, every single one of us in that crowd would have thought the same thing. If four people are pushing somebody in a wheelchair through a crowd and the crowd won't let that person through, we would all have choice words that you probably would not admit that you are thinking and not that you would even say at church. This is disrespectful. Get out of the way. Let the person through. We would all, I think, have that response to some extent and rightfully so. And that's what's taking place. And in verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they moved the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed, which the paralytic lie. And so they go up on the roof, you know, didn't bring a chainsaw. They didn't really need it, but it would have been a good idea if they had it. And so they, they dig a hole through the roof. And you may be thinking that's going to be crazy hard, and it wouldn't be. It would be a basic roof, not like yours and mine, but it would have some straw mud and some plaster over it they probably would have made quick work of it. So it wouldn't have taken a long time. But imagine, I'm here preaching right now and stuff falls from the ceiling. You're going to stop looking at me and you're going to look up, right? That's what you're going to do. And Jesus is there, he's preaching. And I just, I mean, it doesn't tell us, but I assume Jesus stopped preaching and just maybe just walked off to the side and is like, we're just going to see what happens. And so these four guys bust a hole in the roof. And I don't know if a couple climbed down and the other two, you know, somehow got the mat down and they brought this man so close to Jesus that they could smell his breath. So they got through the crowd and they bring him to Jesus. And it's fascinating here, what we see. Four men who decide to Love God with muchness by bringing a man to Jesus. In the context, we don't know if these people are believers or non-believers. So they bring this paralytic to Christ, and Christ says, uh, I saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a story about real people, and you're real people too, and so let's just think about this for a moment. If you come, if four of your friends or Random people you don't even know brought you to Jesus and stand and set you and lie you down before Jesus. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You're going to be thinking, homie, that's not why I'm here. Like, I think, Jesus, you're missing the point. Do I need to point out the elephant in the room? Like, I'm not here for you to forgive my sins. I've got a much pressing issue at hand than my sins. a quick glance, it seems that Jesus is not aware of what's taking place. And what would you be thinking if that was you, if you were the paralytic? I'm here for uh, a little bit more than my sins to be forgiven, Jesus. Jesus, I heard you were powerful, but really, like, that's all you got, homie? Like, let's, let's work on this a little bit here. I have something much more pressing in my life than my sins. I'm paralyzed, Jesus. And I don't know if if he even had the ability to hold himself up. We don't know. But imagine you're lying on the floor, and you know that Jesus has the power to heal you, and He tells you your sins are forgiven. You'd be thinking, "That's a smuck. I'm not here for that. I have immediate problems, Jesus. What about my legs? They don't work. What about me being able to play with my kids?" What about me being able to just go for a swim? What about me being able just to go to the bathroom on my own? Jesus, these are much more pressing. I wonder even to, uh, as dads, to walk your daughter down an aisle. I would want my legs fixed, not my sins forgiven. And I think you'd do the same. If we're honest, what do you think the man wanted more? Forgiveness of his sins are two legs that worked. I think most of us would go with the two legs that worked. Often in biblical times and even today, people come to God and desire all that God has. I would even go so far to say is nonbelievers, Christians, atheists, and even agnostics want a lot from God. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's why you're here today. And if you are, that's okay. It's fine to be. When I was 15 years old, I went through a church for the first time. I just wanted a mom who would choose her kids over drugs. I just wanted a dad who would no longer choose a 32-pack of natural light and just love his sons. And maybe you're here because you want something from God too. And that's okay. Okay. I think many of us start there. God gives and he takes away. It's like God knows what he's doing when he does not give the man what he wants. And not taunting him, no way doing that at all. He he knows better. Jesus knows the man has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. I think it's important to realize that Jesus is still tender in the way he loves. Even when we ask for things, Jesus is not saying to the paralytic that his physical problems are dumb, because he's not. He's not saying that at all. I think he's saying, I see you. I see the pain that you're in. I understand what you're going through. He's sympathetic. But you need to see the bigger problem and it is not your current suffering situation that's your true problem. It's your sin. If this seems offensive to you, consider this. If someone tells you your problems are not what happens to you, or not what people have done to you, but your main problem is the way that you respond to those things that happen to you. I think this is empowering, because we then understand that we can't change the way people treat us or the things they do to us, but you have an effect on your reaction to that. I think it's actually empowering. It's as if Jesus is trying to get the man to go deeper. You're not going deep enough and getting to the real problem that you have. Let's go deeper than your circumstances. Let's look beyond what you can physically see and even physically feel. We underestimate the depth of our longings, church. I am sure the man is thinking of only, if I can walk again, my problems will be over. I'll be happy. I I will never complain again. I'll be set for life. If I can only walk, all the wrongs in my life will be set right. If I... Heal you, sure you'll be happy, Jesus says. Like, like, It's like you think euphoria is going to last forever, but in reality, our discontented hearts and the roots of that go much deeper than our current circumstances. Our real problem for all of us is building our identities on something other than Jesus himself. We make our wishes into our savior. It's like, it's like we come to God and just to get enough of God to get us over the hump, so we can quickly come back to saving ourselves. In reality, God is asking us to not just expect much from him. He's expecting muchness from us. Verse 6, now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts, and so Jesus said something that ticked these guys off big time. There's a few trigger words when he said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus Jesus's, uh, the religious leaders that are there with Jesus are infuriated because they know what that means. In verse seven, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. We can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Hearing from the mouth of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, choked and caused anger to boil up within these people. They thought Jesus was being irreverent towards God. So to illustrate this, I've got a picture here of a couple pastors on staff, and you may know these guys. Pastor Chad and Pastor Nema. just for example, I've never seen this happen. Just to, let me just premise this with this, all right? Just for fun example's sake. Um, let's say Pastor Chad punches Pastor Nema in the face. <laughs> I've never seen any inclinations of this at all, um, and just so follow with me. And there's blood everywhere. Let's just everywhere. That's what happens. And then I go up to Pastor Chad and I say, Chad, I forgive you for punching Nima. If you're Nima, you're thinking, Lucas, get out of the way, bro. Like, you, he hit me and that's you. You can't, you can't give forgiveness for something that didn't happen to you. Like, Chad has to ask for forgiveness from, from Nima because that's who he hit, Right? And that's really what's taking place here in this context. Like, Jesus himself, like, that's why Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is really saying is, your sins have been against me. Which is why he can give the forgiveness. The only one who could say that would be the creator himself. An Old Testament audience, if understand Deuteronomy 6, this Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, would clearly understand. And in the culture in that time, Jesus, by forgiving the man his sins, is telling all who could hear that he is claiming to be God. Christ is putting himself on equal authority as God Himself. And that statement alone will cost Christ his life. It will be the same argument that the religious leaders used later on to prove why Christ should be crucified. And immediately Jesus perceiving his spirit in verse eight and that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Imagine the paralytic is lying on the floor watching this dialogue take place. Hey, uh, I'm still down here, guys. Like, can we get back to why I actually showed up? Like, my friends brought me to the roof. Like, come on. Like, let's get back to my legs here. Like, I don't, give, I don't care about your religious issues. I'm still here. And the point is, is it's a lot harder to heal someone than to forgive someone. This is why. Because nobody can prove whether or not the forgiveness really took place. But it would be obvious if you were healed. He's also saying, I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the savior of the world who who can forgive sins. And he says that for us today and for you today. Jesus knows the moment he lets out the truth, these words come out of his mouth that he's not only a miracle worker, but he's also the savior of the world and they are eventually going to kill him. Christ is taking a decisive, irreversible step towards death. It's as if Christ came closer to you ever before you thought about taking a step towards him. We could say here that God loves us with his muchness, that he sent his son Jesus to pay our debt, to forgive us of our sins, your sins. Christ moved towards us. Jesus knows we need more more than, than somebody to be a miracle worker for us. We need a savior. Jesus knows that in order to be the savior, he's going to have to die. We are created to love and to be loved. It doesn't matter if you're a three-month-old baby or you're 95 years old. You are created to love and to be loved. We will love something. So God is calling us to the highest way to love, to love him with our muchness. He's calling us to love in such a way that his glory is expressed in its muchness is calling his church to express our muchness so that our communities and others around us do not go without. Our hearts will have affections and be drawn to something and God is guiding us to love what matters most and in the way that matters most. Verse 10, but that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Imagine, church, let's not quickly go over this. Imagine you're paralyzed. The muscle tissue and the strength in your legs is gone. You have no strength in your legs. They're weak and they're most likely small. And let's imagine you're on the front row and the paralyzed man is lying there and, and Jesus heals him in front of you. What do you think happens? This is real people. This is not a fictitious story. So I imagine legs that have not been used, muscle grows. The calf muscle is developed. The, the thigh muscles are developed. The guy walks out of the house. He's able to bend his knees. So what would it have looked like to see a man whose legs were small and had not been used in so long that they would grow to where it would be normative, maybe similar to your leg and to mine? What would that be like for a kid to to pull on mom's coat? Mom, did you see that? And I don't know how fast it happened. I have no idea. But imagine, like, like, the legs grew to be normal. The guy walked out of the house. Like, this is something you'd be talking about, like, you remember that one time when Jesus healed that dude's leg? That was crazy. You'd be like, I know, the guy with the chainsaw coming down the roof was crazy too. <laughs> like, you, this would be, you have to envision that. This is not a fictitious story because that's how life works. Like you need the muscles and tendons and the calf muscle in your leg. And this dude walked out of this house. Why in the world would these four men bring this paralytic to Jesus? The story doesn't tell us. I don't know if it's like their brother-in-law. I have no idea if it's family. I have no idea if one of, the, one of the men go to work every day and they go to the same coffee shop that the paralytic guy's hanging out and he strikes up a conversation and they build a relationship over a couple years and, and maybe he invites his other friends and these four guys are hanging out with this other guy who can't move. I have no idea what the relationship is. It doesn't tell us. I don't know if, if the guy was like, hey bro, I'll give you a 50 if you'll take me to see Jesus. Like, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But I do know one thing. And the way that we are wired as humanity, these four men expressed muchness towards God when they brought this man basically to church. And the reason I know that this is significant is because we are supposed to love God with our muchness. I don't know if the four people were believers or not. But I think nonetheless, God uses non-believers and believers alike to prick the hearts of those who will say yes to him and who will become followers of him. I think God uses believers and non-believers alike. We see that throughout scripture. But I know this. There was no benefit that these four men were going to receive for bringing a guy who could not bring any value to their life. And and I don't mean that because the guy didn't have any value. That's That's not my heart and my intent. But that's how we view these things. What's my benefit? Is this worth my time? And so daily... Things of these four men brought this paralytic to church, and it's a struggle that I, even for myself, like I don't, I don't see things like this very often in our culture, where people go to extravagant links, uh, extravagant links to love other people. It's not normative for us to do this. One thing I know is this is an example of how to love God with our muchness. And so three questions that come to my mind as I was studying this passage, and I'll ask you as well, and then I'll say a few words and we'll be done. But what presents us from loving God with our muchness? Like what causes, what makes it so difficult for us to love God with our muchness? And the text actually tells us it's our sin. Our sin. Makes it difficult to love God with our muchness. And another thought is how how did God love us with his muchness? When we come to God and we gotta need this problem fixed. If my spouse would just get her act together or his act together, if I would just have, if you would just provide the future husband or my future wife now, I don't want to wait. God, here's my issue. My boss is a whatever. We never have enough money. I can't, I can't provide in a way for my kids. The way, all of these things we come up with. And we think it's the thing in our lives that's most critical. And Christ looks past that at your very being and your soul and says, your sins are forgiven. And you have that opportunity as well. That's something that you could hear from God today. And what's fascinating is, it's because he uses the word son, which I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about. And it's a word that literally means like you're a child of God. He's not, the paralytic guy is not a baby, but Jesus uses this, you're a son of God and basically says you're in the family. You get all the benefits of what it means to be a part of this family. And then I, A question that I have as well is how can we love God with our muchness? If God commands in Deuteronomy 4 or nudges us to love God with our muchness, how can you do that? Any way you possibly can. Just choose one. 2020's here. Maybe it's an opportunity where you're gonna be involved in church for the first time or you're going to sign up for a group for the first time, or you're going to kill a sin in your life that you've been dragging around like a pet for 35 years. Choose one. Don't be too picky. Choose a way for you to love God with your muchness. And feel free to read the book of Acts and ask yourself one question. What is the church and what does the church do? Because the church is very devoted to one another. no matter your age, your biblical knowledge, how long you've been in church or your skill level in anything in life, by the fact that you were created in the image of God says you have value and you have much to offer. I don't think it would be too childlike to simply say, I think it's possible for you to literally love God with your muchness when you brush your teeth. I don't know if that means like crest versus something else. But like, let's, let's think about these things. If God says to love him with all of our muchness, that means everything. Even though you've got a junky job, worship the Lord and honor him through it. Who cares if the boss is the way he is? We can give excuses all day long for the issues that we have in life because church, there are gonna be more that are gonna come. <laughs> There's always gonna be something on the horizon. I imagine these four guys, this is actually pretty funny. I imagine these four guys like hanging around like at Kirby Lane, drinking coffee, eating bacon in their 80s, which they're not, I don't think you're supposed to do that, but I will. <laughs> eating some pancakes. I remember, I just, I just envision these four guys just standing around being like, man, you remember that one time that Jesus healed that dude? Like, man, I'm sure I am glad you thought to come down through the roof because that wouldn't have happened if you didn't. Like we'd be here s- telling some other story about how we didn't get into the into the opportunity to see Jesus' face. Do you remember that one time when this guy's legs went from nothing to completely healed and that mug walked out of that room? He came down through the roof, but I guarantee you every one of those people moved away just enough so he could walk out the front door. Church, let's live out our faith. Let's not complicate this. Life is complicated enough. Austin Oaks Church, I'm asking, God is asking, and God is calling us to be a church that loves God with our muchness. Let's follow Christ and do all we can to drag others into the kingdom of God with us. Austin Oaks Church, let's be a church that lives out what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and our strength. And I... Imagine this, and I'll be done. Imagine the man is walking his daughter down the aisle because he can walk. Imagine the four guys at a baptism because this paralyzed daughter or son gets saved. And they're nudging each other. Man, remember that one time we went to the roof? This is what's happening because we just just brought a dude to Jesus. What would it be like for those four guys to be at the wedding of that guy's kids? Like, this is real life stuff. Don't overlook this. This is real life. And what would it look like if we as a church love God with our muchness? Whose baptism are you going to stand by? Whose whose deathbed are you going to stand by and say, This person just walked into the kingdom? So, to end, Josh, will you put up Mark 12 for me, please? So, church, let's just be simply about Jesus. And the passage simply says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time this morning. Thanks that we got to dive into a passage of scripture that talks about how to love God with our muchness. Believers in the room followers of Christ in the room. How are you going to love God with your muchness? How are you going to love God with everything that you have? Don't be picky. Just pick something. How are you going to help your spouse and your kids to love God with their muchness? Atheists and agnostics or whatever you want to call yourself in the room and wherever you're at you have most likely wanted much from God and Christ hears you he sees you he knows what you're going through but he wants to go deeper than your superficial problems and not to negate those problems they are real and he wants to save you. So if you're in the room and you want to decide to follow Jesus, let's do that. Let's follow Christ. Church, let's, let's God, help us to be a church that values the gospel. And God, may we love you with our muchness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.